0: Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, uh, reading uh, chapter 44, verses 9 to 20. So, All who fashions idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol? that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forests. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and he says, Aha! I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is this not a lie in my right hand?
1: In our own country, there are hundreds and thousands of uh, different religions. People make choices in regard to those religions all of the time. Generally, they're fancied by something. Uh, Some cases, it's an image. It's not so much uh, in the West as it is in the East, but sometimes we fashion an image I used to go to work traveling out uh, east on 36th Street. You cross I-35, and before too long on the north side of the street, there's a Buddhist temple. Lots of images. Uh, It's not just that uh, people who immigrate from America that go there. Uh, There are Westerners that go there. I've talked to them staggered in my own imagination of a Westerner going, reaching east to an idol. Uh, But in terms of the West, we fashion gods in different ways. We fashion different theories and we worship them and we find security and comfort in them. And so Isaiah this morning is going to look at what it means to be an idolater, to fashion a wrong God. I don't know what that means to you. I know what Isaiah will tell us. Uh, Maybe if you use a word like good luck, Maybe mentally you have fashioned an idol, because there's no such thing in the Bible as good luck. There is God, and there's a howling wilderness. I've met a number of people who profess to be Christians who rub coins. Uh, This patron saint of the traveler, the fisherman, the... I'd have never understood that, but it's very popular in our culture to wear these icons to put them in our cars. Don't find your safety and security in a saint. Look elsewhere. But again, Isaiah is going to take us down uh, memory lane and look at the idolater and examine him, what he means, what he does, what he fashions, and who he is. And in all that... Isaiah says he brings him under the terrifying prospect of the judgment of God. We begin our text this morning with judgment, uh, and then we will repair again, and the text uh, will end in judgment, verses 18 to 20. So verses 9 to 11, verses 18 to 20, judgment, and then we're going to look at the man who fashions an idol. Uh, Again, if you're from the east, it may be an image. If you're from the west, it may be a theory of some kind, a place where you have your hope, uh, where your dreams are satisfied and met. I don't know how it might break out, but again, uh, if it's absent God, it's an idol. Uh, So in our text in verses 9 to 11, 18 to 20, uh, the prophet Isaiah is going to savage the idolater spiritually. And then in verses 12 to 17, he's going to savage him satirically. Uh, maybe a strong word, uh, but it captures something of the essence of the terrifying judgment of God that breaks upon all who fashion idols, who find their hope and security in anything save the Lord God of Holy Scripture. By judgment, it's a reminder that God is king, so to choose a fake over him is to bring his immediate wrath. And that's what the idolater does. He takes a fake and he becomes enamored with that which is a fake as over against uh, the Lord God of Scripture. By satire, I mean that Isaiah will ridicule the idolater with the absurdity of his actions. Uh it's an interesting type of witness. I would encourage you to be very careful with, with uh, savaging someone satirically, uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's exactly what Isaiah is going to do. Well, let's begin with judgment and spiritual ruin uh, upon the idolater. Uh, the text begins in verse 9, those forming the idol. Uh, it's a very interesting choice of uh, verbs because that verb is used in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 7, of God Forming man, a creative act. I'm of a philo- philosophical position that man creates nothing. Only God can create. Now, I understand we may use a scientific model and we may fashion something out of a mathematical model or whatever, but I choose not to use the word create because I believe only God creates. And in the case of Genesis chapter 2, He forms a man from the dust of the ground and breathes the breath of life to him so he becomes a living being. And that is the point of departure from the one true God in forming an idol which cannot breathe and has no life whatsoever. The contrast is immediate. Idols are lifeless. Prophet Jeremiah uh says of the idol that he has no breath in himself. He cannot breathe. Uh, we breathe because God breathed upon us in an act of creation. Reminded of this uh watching uh program on television Uh, forget really the name of it, bizarre foods or interesting food, I don't know. But anyway, we're traveling in Asia and I'm being uh, uh, delighted by someone who's making this extravagant uh, pork dish and then this fish dish and then it's formed into an incredible uh, meal. And so what does the cook do? Well, they take it outside and set the plate before. A stone image, really, does a stone image eat the pork and eat the eat the fish paste really no i don 't know who gets it the birds, the insects, but eventually, I suspect they come and they they uh, scrape the dish into the trash, but that 's raw idolatry it 's present in the east, and it 's coming west by the way, uh, to a channel near you because I see it more and more we are embracing. Eastern theology captured for us in the essence of idolatry. Intrigued by the silliness of putting an outstanding meal before a stone object. But I know what most people have, our socks. I mean, everybody should have a right to choose, and whatever pleases you and whatever makes you happy, that's okay. I'm just reminding you that it brings immediate terrifying judgment because God is not happy when you choose a fake and you engage in silly actions by bowing or trying to feed that which is an inanimate object. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 in verse 28 is a reminder of this. So I read to you from the word of God. Uh, He's writing of his countrymen, for his creation in Israel, and there you will serve gods the work of man's hands, wood, and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. Idols don't eat. By the way, God doesn't eat either. When they sacrificed bulls and goats and turtle doves, it wasn't because God was hungry. It was a sacrificial act expressing atonement by blood as a symbol that God would come again in his son and shed blood for the remission of sin. God doesn't get hungry. If he did, he wouldn't be God. The, it's an allusion to Isaiah in the history of the church, book of Acts, the 17th chapter. You know, you know from the text that The Apostle Paul has gone uh, uh, to Athens, and there he sees uh, an idol, uh, the title of which is an unknown god. Uh, And he tells the Athenians, essentially, that they are worshiping in ignorance. Uh, And so Paul proclaims God. Decisive choice. Uh, you worship in ignorance or you proclaim uh, the one true God. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 24 to 20, 25. Uh, Paul's ministry uh, to idolaters. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all and breath uh, to all things. Now, if you would skip down to verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. And that's really the history of civilization, the art and the thought of man fashioning idols. And again, I tell you, I see it more and more in the West because the East is coming West. I was shopping in Denver at a store, Go into the store, and right next to that store was a store that sold idols of Eastern gods. This is incredible. Nonetheless, coming to a store near you, uh, idolatry. Paul goes goes on, of course, as you know in his sermon, to proclaim what? The resurrected Christ, the Christ who lives. Images don't live. They're fakes. The living Christ lives forever. He rose and he conquered death, and that's why we worship and serve him alone. Uh, Well, uh, in the case of our text, the idolater uh, brings judgment upon himself, for Isaiah describes him, the Hebrew word tohu, Uh, the New American Standard has the words feudal, but the words used, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, that the world was without form. Isaiah uses this word elsewhere of chaos. Uh, Moses uses it as a description of, of a wasteland. Uh, Therefore, idolatry is confusion and a regression of life to that which is absolutely meaningless, Isaiah is really telling us. It's a regression from the beauty of the creation as formed and spoken into existence by God to that which the the world existed prior to God speaking. And even before that, of course, there was God. Uh, So we're in full retreat, uh, leaving light to darkness. Furthermore, Isaiah says, they are of no profit whatsoever. They gain you nothing. They bring no spiritual gain. They do nothing for their worshipers. They occupy space and time, but they're of no positive spiritual value. In fact, Isaiah tells us they bring ruin. I remember talking to a friend of mine, a professing Christian. who told me, well, you know, I'm I'm a progressive. I let my children pick their own uh, religion. I thought, Really? Uh, I was so taken aback, I didn't even have words to speak, because had I had a mind to him, I would have said, you know, you ought to really read your scriptures. Uh, That's a retreat into darkness and utter ruin. Because there's really only two, two religions in the world, the worship of the one true God, or the worship of idols, which are of no value whatsoever. And the moment you embrace an idol, you come under immediate, judgment. One of the wisest men that's ever lived once spoke these words, there's a way that seems right into man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You choose a fake over God, death becomes your friend, comes into your brain, is all over you. And so, let's look at the effect of, of, uh, of idolatry in In Judgment from Isaiah chapter 44, uh, the text says, uh, they fail to see or know. There's two very interesting words because idols have eyes, but they can't see. And they have seemingly a brain, but they cannot think or know anything because they're utterly inanimate. It is the continual reminder from the prophet Isaiah that people become like the gods that they serve. And the moment you become an idolater, you begin to lose your spiritual eyesight. You become dead, and you lose your ability to think. It's as if you've introduced into your mind an incredibly uh, destructive virus like we would on a computer. In other words, the idolater cannot process reality. Let's remind ourselves of this from a very couple of verses that we've looked at. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah Isaiah is speaking to the nation. He says, blind yourselves and be blind. That's, That's what you do when you worship a false god, when you choose a fake over the one true God. You become blind. You're really blinding yourself. And so he's mocking them. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord, notice the judgment. This is terrifying. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. So the Lord is affecting the judgment, putting people into spiritual sleep like an anesthesiologist would before you uh, uh, go under the knife of your surgeon. It's terrifying judgment. So we have this folly in our country. We have people just choose whatever God they want to choose, and God will get along with it. He'll be okay with it, won't he? I mean, whatever makes you happy, whatever trips your trigger. No, the Lord begins to execute immediate judgment the moment you choose a fake over him. It's exactly the commission of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. He commissions Isaiah to do what? Go render the hearts of this people fat, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and repent and I heal them. In other words, he's going to conform them to their idols. Idols have eyes, but they they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. So the judgment becomes you worship that which is a fake. You're not going to be able to see and understand or hear And process reality and repent before the Lord God and be healed uh, because of your idolatry. Terrifying judgment, immediate judgment. Uh, The text closes with a purpose clause they'll come to shame. Uh, Another verse we've looked at, again, in the development of the theology of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1. In verses 29 and 30. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed of the gardens which you have chosen. Imagery there is, of course, of creation, the Garden of Eden. Uh, You reject God, you'll never enter into his garden. In fact, you will become a lifeless garden filled with thorns and thistles and all the brambles, and you will be nothing. There will be no beauty whatsoever. You will become like trees that bear no fruit and have no green leaves whatsoever. The transformation of the idolater is incredible. It is profound. It's a totality of destruction that we bring upon ourselves when we embrace the folly of a fake over the one true God. It is a reminder, I think, to be very careful about using senseless words like good luck or rubbing some coin or image or wearing something around your neck that uh, might give a picture that you uh, look to a saint to save you or to protect you or to watch over you. And so that's what's going to happen to the idolater. They're going to be ruined and destroyed. Well, from judgment, uh, we turn to satire, verses 12 to 17. The prophet treats us to a theater of the absurd. I, I would caution you about using satire in, in sharing the gospel with, uh, with people, but uh, it is good to learn from the prophet, uh, and maybe there's wisdom here for all of us. The genre is satire. Isaiah begins with a blacksmith. He heats metal, and he fashions it with a hammer and strong arms. But Isaiah says of the blacksmith that he gets hungry and thirsty and weak and weary. The idol, therefore, is dependent upon the man who made it with all of his frailties and imperfections. If the idolater gets hungry and weak and weary and needs a nap, And what does it say about the God that he seemingly fashions? And that is the point of the satire. It's a reminder of the utterly utter absurdity of his actions. Let's remind ourselves of the theology of the prophet Isaiah, chapter forty, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become Weary or tired, his understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. The idolater gets weak and weary, takes a nap, has to go refresh himself with a drink or, you know, eat number two on your favorite menu. God never gets hungry, never wearies, never tires, never needs a nap, never falls asleep. Always God forever God, reminder that the greater forms the lesser, the majesty of the God that we serve. And then to the carpenter, verse 13, he shapes wood with all of his tools. He makes it in the form of a man, uh, in the beauty of man, and puts it in his house. Meaning what? The idol is totally dependent upon its maker. Here, the lesser man is forming a lesser in the image. Carpenter cuts down trees. It's interesting, if you follow the progression of how uh, Isaiah describes the idolater, uh, he uses it first to warm himself and then to cook, and the remainder he makes into a God that he falls down before and worships and prays to for deliverance in verse 17. The idolater, therefore, is dependent upon nature to produce the raw product, as in sunshine and rain. And the tree is first and foremost used in everyday events in life, like warmth and preparation of a meal, and the afterthought is to make a God. Along with the everyday affairs of life, the idolater makes a god as an afterthought to his well-being. Really, the absurdity of that is profound, but nonetheless, it's the engagement of the idolater. It's a profound illustration, by the way, that the very nature of man is to worship something, so he worships that which he makes as an afterthought to his well-being. Well, in the West, we don't, at this point, we don't make uh, images. Uh, we we worship ideas, theories. In naturalism, nature is God. In secular humanism, human reason is God. Again, if you think about that, nature is an effect, not a cause. And unaided reason has made a mess of things in my own view. Uh, Think of the tragic wake-up call of the First World War and the incredible loss of life. Reminder that unaided reason produced what? Incredible death in the trenches and uh, warfare of, Untold proportion in gas and destruction of entire generation of Western youth. So how's unaided reason looking working out for you, Western civilization? Reminder. Incredible debauchery of man. So what do we do? We we fashion an idea as if we got here by time and chance. And there's all these transitional forms in the geological record aren't there. No, they're not, as if that in and of itself is not enough of a wake-up call. Where are the transitional forms in the geological record that we evolved from time and chance? The incredible silliness of the logic that order comes from disorder. It's the worship of a theory people retreat to. In the East, it's an image. In the West, it's a false idea that's vacuous and empty of God. What happens, of course, is immediate judgment. But that age in life where I go to the doctor more and more, and you know that you know how it is—you sit in an anteroom for too long, and then they they take you to another room. You sit there too long, so I'm you know what am I going to do with all this time? So I start reading the charts on the wall. Uh, happened to be at my ophthalmologist and. Talking about the optic nerve, there are some a million connections between the human eye and the brain. A million connections. Now I know that doesn't prove the God of Scripture. I'm not even advocating that it it prove intelligent design. But one thing for sure, it's a reminder that time and chance just doesn't get it for me if there are a million connections between the optic nerve and the human brain, maybe I need to relook at Darwin's theory of evolution. When I went to the university, there was a religion department. I'm not so sure that every department in many universities aren't religion departments, producing false gods and idols in terms of ideas that vacate God. And they don't have a clue of the danger of the judgment that they bring upon themselves. I'm not saying every university, uh, but certainly uh, many in our culture. Uh, They mock Christians in their own satire. It's very interesting to me that Isaiah is doing the mocking with incredible satire. The satire is that the carpenter, the theoretician worships what he makes or thinks. Again, the lesser makes the greater. It doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul is the ultimate commentary here on the idolater. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, what is behind the idol or the theory that vacates God is demonic. Terrifying prospect, the judgment of God. Let me give you a couple ideas of my own understanding, minor though it may be, of idolatry. One of my favorite anti heroes in American culture, please remember the word anti. Very popular when I was a young man, it's a guy by the name of Timothy Leary. Name me anything, y'all? He His idol was LSD. Now, how'd you like to stand before God and say, I, I worship the LSD over you? Of course, Leary lost his mind, literally. You know, LSD was uh, looked at for a long time by the CIA uh, as a way to do mind control. They rejected it because there's, uh, there's uh, no way to produce a common effect. Uh, there's no way to have predictability in LSD. Timothy Leary, what a great picture of a man who worshiped a drug. And yet, what are we doing everywhere in our culture today but popping this and that? And Again, I understand the medical necessity for a lot of it, but it wasn't medical necessity for Timothy Leary. He lost his mind in the process. I don't know if you know this or not in terms of your history, but Charles Darwin uh, was plagued psychologically all of his life, I suspect, over what he'd done. His wife used to read the scripture to him and pray for him to bring him some peace. never could get it. Uh, His nurse tells a story that he found a measure of peace reading the book of Hebrews. It's interesting, is it not? Great peace in the book of Hebrews, forgiven by Christ. Again, reminder that he makes a false theory that vacates God, and perhaps we hope and pray at the end of his life, certainly too late to pray, but end of his life. Maybe he found peace in the book of Hebrews. Again, we we worship the man and we worship his theories. Utter silliness in my mind, uh, because how can complexity come from really nothingness? Well, the great commentary and this comes from the Apostle Paul, a text that I'm sure you're familiar with. I want to look at it from the standpoint of judgment. Romans chapter one, verses twenty-two to twenty-three. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's really the theology of Isaiah 44. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Okay, so that's the idolater. The theme of Isaiah's is judgment. Let's look at the judgment that comes in the words of the Apostle Paul. Verse 24, God gave them over. God actively judges them and gives them over that to that which is utter folly and depravity and darkness of soul. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. It's used the third time, verse 28, God gave them over to depraved minds. God actively engagement in judgment the moment someone chooses a fake over him or who vacates him in a lifeless theory. The truth, of course, is that God makes us in his image and stamps his presence upon our souls. And sadly, the history of civilization is men suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. Well, the text ends, as I suggested, as it began with a return to judgment on the idolater in verses 18 to 20. So we begin with judgment, we look at the idolater and his silliness, and then we conclude with judgment. If you will, two great bookends on that which is fake. Again, if you have your Old Testament, I ask you to look uh, very closely at the text because it recites exactly how Isaiah has begun the text. They do not know, nor do they understand. Why is that? Because they've been transformed into the image that they themselves worship. Idols can't think, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't walk, and you bring immediate spiritual ruin upon yourself when you fashion an idol or a theory that vacates God. Notice something else in the text that's profound. For he, God, has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. God judges immediately. He smears over their eyes and their hearts, destroying their sensory organs that they especially need for salvation. I've said this before, but... It's an act of mockery. God is saying, you want to be idols so much, I'll just make you like them. You want to be a stone figure? You want to be a Buddha? I'll just I'll just make you like the gods that you pursue. You want to worship a theory, a, a theory, not a fact, but a theory that vacates God? Uh, again, you'll introduce a virus into your mind or your brain that you know not the danger of. Let's look at another measurement uh, of that danger, the Apostle Paul, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, in verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon... Notice the subject. God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. God acting in judgment. All these theories of this and theories of that vacate God. It's God... Sends upon them a deluding influence so that they hold and believe and pretend. Judgment of God. Terrifying prospect of the judgment of God when you choose a fake over the real thing. I have a friend of mine that's uh, acquaintance, maybe is a better term, into coin collecting. I don't know if you're aware of this a lot, but in my own mind, some of the most beautiful of all coins are American gold and silver coins. You know, the St. Gaudens, the Mercury Dime. I understand that uh, idols are upon them, uh, but uh, they'd be very careful in terms of uh, collecting coins. You know why? Because the Chinese have introduced fakes into our coin collecting world. Well, that's what people are doing, chasing fakes, when they have the real thing and the living God who's conquered death in Jesus Christ. Again, they've lost their minds. All of them have become like Timothy Leary. The text literally reads that uh, he does not return in his heart because they are ruined spiritually. The idolater is absent knowledge and understanding, which are needful for salvation, because he's been transformed into the fake God that he worships. He's unable to process the silliness of what he has done. And so Isaiah says... The carpenter falls down before a block of wood and worships the block as over against the God who created the trees and nature to water it to give it sunshine. The uh, The imagery becomes uh, uh, even much more pronounced if you look at verse 20. He feeds on ashes. As reminder the carpenter, I mean, he, he cuts down a tree and he uh, burns some of it for uh for warmth. He burns uh, another portion of it for uh, uh, for cooking a meal creating ashes. He forms an idol, but that's ashes as well and then he feeds upon the ashes. Uh, never studied nutrition at the university. But I have this deep, nagging suspicion that there is no nutrition whatsoever in ashes. But that's the idolater feeding on ashes, gaining nothing. His soul is famished, and he's crazed with thirst because of the judgment that has enveloped him. Isaiah goes on to say, his deceived heart has turned him and ruined him. The problem with American culture is that we're in tune to feelings, but when you engage in idolatry, you don't feel anything, even though something terrible is happening to you. There's really no physical symptoms, and that's our problem. We know we're sick when we have physical symptoms, so we go to the doctor because we have, I don't know, too many headaches or uh, we can't sleep. Whatever symptoms you have that cause you to go to the doctor, but in the case of the of of idolatry and it's disease. There's no physical symptoms, but terrible things are happening to you nonetheless. Lastly, and Isaiah is emphatic upon this, he cannot deliver himself or understand that he has given himself over to lies and deceit. Well, it's a terrifying prospect of judgment on the idolater. Uh, Judgment and satire. Return to judgment. I will simply tell you as a congregation there's only one way out and that's Jesus Christ. Christ is the only cure. Uh, I remind you of the great promises of the new covenant that God will give us new hearts. He gives new hearts. You know why? Because idolaters have ruined their hearts and so Christ as the ultimate great creator gives new hearts that we might know, see, and comprehend who he is and what he has done. The image of the stone heart is the prospect of judgment of the idolater. He's being transformed into the stone idol that he worships. And who can take away the stone heart? The Lord Christ. In the new covenant, he gives us new hearts. If you're an idolater, therefore, you must flee to Christ who gives new hearts. By the way, that's one of the reasons as we read to the Gospels what is Christ oftentimes doing in an idolatrous nation, which Israel was, of course, in his own day, not unlike our own day. Blind men come to him, and what does he do? He heals them because he's the creator. He can give eyesight to a man whose, let's say, optic nerves are totally destroyed. But for spiritual purposes, he gives the ability to see and to comprehend him. It's the point of the miracle of healing. It, deaf men come to him, and what does he do? He heals them because he can grant the ability to hear. And For us, he grants the ability to spiritually hear the word of God and to comprehend it and to sue for peace, proclaim him as our Savior. He creates eyes and ears and hearts. You give an illustration of this. First uh, Thessalonians, uh, chapter one. Apostle Paul had been to a church and seen a church come up, and they were a church of idolaters, uh, people that were gathered who were formerly idolaters. I want to read you to a prelude to the ultimate text I want to read, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, that there is a first cause to many things, all things, and that is God. We come to faith because He chose us. Our coming to faith is based upon his election of us. Notice the effect of that in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. When you reject the fakery, the fakes, the bad ideas, the terrible theories, the vacuous theories of our culture, and you come to the knowledge of the living and true God it's because ultimately God has turned you unto himself. as the effect of your election. The majesty of his causality is the one true God who has power over everything. If you're not a Christian, my friend, that is your starting point and your only hope, Christ, the great physician of the soul, that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know. To reverse the judgment of idolatry. And so when it comes to religion, there are many in our culture. The East is rapidly coming West, and even in the West, we have terrible theories that vacate God. But there are really just two choices, life or death. Isaiah has told us about death Jesus Christ tells us about life. There's life only in him. There's no middle ground, by the way, and there is no neutrality. You are either chasing one or the other. Two camps, two types of men and women or boys and girls, life or death. The cry of the scripture captured for us in the words of Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. I don't know what gods you're going to choose. But as for me and my family, we choose the Lord because he alone in the midst of death is life. Christ is our life in a sea of idolatry. Choose you this day, Joshua says, whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, We choose.